everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hello. So, we're only a couple weeks away from our first anniversary, having doing this benighted project for a full 12 months, which is roughly probably 11 more than it deserved. You know, it's important to mark such moments when they occur. I actually looked it up. The appropriate gift for a first anniversary. Do you know what that is? Is it the Styrofoam anniversary? No, no, no. The first anniversary is the paper anniversary. Gotcha. Which is trouble. Which is problematic. I wanted to get you something to mark it, but I can't think of anything, any kind of appropriate gift that would be primarily made out of paper. It's just nothing, nothing, nothing springs to mind. I can see from your blank look that this is equally daunting for yes, you. Like, it's just uh, a, a nice envelope. No idea. Toilet paper, maybe? I don't know. Uh, anyway, if anyone has any, any suggestions for something that is made of paper or cardboard or something that would be appropriate for a gaming podcast and the, the one-year one anniversary, by all means, send it in uh, to suggestions at aircanada.ca. So uh, we're going to change things up this week. We're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is called Discover Lens Unknown. And our topic for this week is going to be overused themes. So why don't we get started with the games we played last week? What did you play last week, Walker? I got to play Endeavor again for the second time, and I'm enjoying it more and more each time. It's a great uh, expansionist-type game where you're sailing across and getting... It's like an area-majority game, I guess you could say, right? You want you know get your tokens in certain and have the most there in order to get the governor cards and get the right cards... And has uh, the new edition, Kickstarter edition just came out, so the components are really nice. Not overly fond with some of the second edition editions. The exploits. Exploits. But I can see why it might uh, be a little more boring without them. Maybe it just takes like, a few more plays to get used to them. I have to say that the exploits that I've seen have been a mixed bag. Some of them introduce a lot more direct conflict than I'd like in a, for, for a game like Endeavor. I do appreciate that it gives you some impetus for entering some regions, even when you wouldn't necessarily be inclined to. And that element, I, I think, is good. Because I, I don't know that I agree with your characterization that Endeavor is an area-majority game, but it's definitely uh, a game where you want to have enough presence. And what enough is varies from time to time. You know, Sometimes you want a couple discs in there to be able to grab a card. Sometimes you want a lot of discs in there to be able to grab yet a better card. Sometimes you just want one in so you can trigger the exploit, or you just want to manipulate the time of when the governor card gets passed around. Anyway, there's there's a fair amount going on. Um, I I've enjoyed Endeavor. I, you know, ever since it was published, I, I kind of liked it. It's a little too loose for my taste. There's a little too many ways to score, so it doesn't really feel as focused. Some of the exploits help with that, but again, some of them just I think make dominate the game a little bit too much. Uh, but anyway, uh, the second edition components, you know, now that it's Endeavor Age of Sale, are indeed very nice, except that there seem to be a number of relatively pervasive manufacturing problems. You'd already commented on the rather seriously warped player boards, which is a very, very widespread problem. I, I think I've seen a lot of chatter on BoardGameGeek from people who have this problem. There's a widespread problem with the player discs having fused together, and as a result, there's paint damage on a lot of them. Anyhow, the, the, the publisher says they're, they're taking care of everything but they're doing it in the slightly uh, less forgiving way, namely the one where they say, send us a picture and give us a full inventory and then we'll send you those. As a, I, you know, I generally prefer it when publishers give you the benefit of the doubt. And if you say, I've got, you know, X damaged components, they're like, here, take it. I don't know. I don't know if they're worried about scammers. Scamming. Well, it's well widespread. When it's one or two, I can see a problem when it's widespread. The other thing with the exploits, I think, is that it really hinders new players, right? It's yet another hurdle. Three totally unique things that you must track the whole time and yet another level of rules that you have to watch over. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where the physical design really detracts from how integrated it could be. You have these boards that are separated out from the main boards. They're linked to the actual main plane board only by these pla uh, wooden or plastic keys. You have to cross-check a number of times. Even people who played before, they're like, wait, which regions does this correspond to again? Because it's this very abstracted kind of icon. We're talking about you know, historical regions of the world, and the crests don't have an obvious correspondence to them, which is odd. Anyway... Endeavor's a solid design. It's been a solid design for almost 10 years now. I still enjoy it, uh, but I do think that it's it's definitely... Um, it, it, it's an interesting counterpoint to how the first edition was published and how the second edition was published. It's kind of like a time capsule of, of, of board game publishing. But that was Endeavor Age of Sail. I got to try a game called Spinderella. Now, Spinderella is a, is a kid's game, but there are lots of kid games that I like. Many of them published by either Hawk or Zock Verlag. I don't think that there's actually any connection between the two, despite the, fact, despite the uh, similarity in their names, at least from an English speaker. And you may be thinking, oh, Mark, why are you going to bother ragging on a kid's game? Be well, it's because there are lots of kid games that I enjoy. Now, admittedly, most of them are dexterity games or speed recognition games, games like Lupin Louie or Castle Knights or... Even some of the other uh, Zock Verlag games like Cockroach Poker, I've played that with children, it worked really well. But Spinderella is a bizarre roll-and-move game with beautiful components. And it's got these magnetic spiders that dangle another uh, magnetic spider below. Basically, the way that it works is there's this string that is anchored by two spiders. So the closer the two spiders get, get the string lowers, and that might snag up some of the pieces with the magnet at the bottom of, of, of this thing. It's all very cool, but the problem is that basically the way the rules work, I and mean, we, we double and triple checked, it creates these no-go zones on the board because the in order to reposition the spiders to grab something, you need more moves than you ever have because you need to reposition them, and then you need to make sure that the string is the right length. So it's always just easier to just lower the damn thing where it's sitting. Anyhow, it leads to bizarre locking conditions. In the rulebook, it admits that there are situations where you're going to have to skip your turn, and it says, don't worry, this will be exceptionally rare. Well, it happened more than half a dozen times in the, time, in the game we played. I don't like games of any nature that rely too heavily on roll to move or on skipped turns, and there's no reason why a kid's game has to have those things. Children are not known for a very high frustration threshold, and so, you know, you, you'd want to minimize instances where there's... Or patience, or... Exactly, exactly. So, so uh, if you're looking for a good kid's game, I would not recommend Spinderella. If you're looking for a kid's game that transcends age boundaries, I would definitely not recommend Spinderella. It's a shame, because it's got magnets and, the, and these it great components. win a Spiel Award or something as well? Isn't that the spider game that won the Spiel Award? Oh, yeah. It won, the game, it won Children's Game of the Year in 2015. Yeah. For both the, the Spiel des Jahres and from the, the DSP, which, oh, man, how far the DSP has fallen. Yeah, I did not enjoy Spinderella, even as a quick kids game jaunt. And as I say, I am not opposed to kids games, so there you have it. What else did you play, Walker? I didn't play very much nude at all. I already talked about Everdell. I introduced it to a bunch of new people. They all enjoyed it. Finally got to play with four people. It uh, opens up how many worker placement areas there are, so it was interesting to play it with all four. We actually cycled through the whole deck, which we didn't do in any of our three-player games. It's a great worker placement starting game. That's Everdell. So we played Western Legends again. This is my Hervé Lemaitre Colossal that was put out this year. It was a, it was a Kickstarter. Wild West-themed games have not really been very successful with the perhaps notable exception of the 1980 classic, in my estimation, called Gunslinger. But 
Western Legends is one of those sandbox style games. And what, what you mean by that is not necessarily that it's going to be like a, a Ubisoft climb a tower to get a map thing, but more it's a function of there are lots of different ways to get points and you can go and pursue the path that you want. They're not quite point salad. It's not like a Feldian design where everything you do is apt to get you points and it's about point maximization. But in Western Legends, you can be a prospector or you can be a cattle rancher or you can be a cattle rustler or you can be a gambler or you can try to work for the law, etc. And I wasn't expecting to like Western Legends, and I have to say that I was I was very pleasantly surprised, because the key way that the game works, I think, is the interaction between people who are choosing to be criminals and people who are choosing not to be criminals, because that's one of the key areas of friction. So long as you are a criminal, you will be getting points every round, and therefore there is an incentive for other players to come stop you, both to stop you from getting points and because they will get a small, less exciting reward for stopping you in the process. And this helps with player interaction, this helps with a risk, sense of risk-reward, and this really increases the sense of being able to do different things. I, I'm, it's not perfect, though. The downtime can be considerable, The particularly when someone decides to play poker. The pacing grinds to a halt as everyone waits for this thing to get resolved, in which probably only one or two players is going to be involved. The player count is not as flexible as I'd like it to be. And uh, perhaps the biggest problem is that the winner seems to be, from our early playings, someone who pursues a non-violent strategy and just buys the necessary upgrades to do it well. They just keep pumping that. And that's the one of the least interesting parts of the game, and it's really hard to interfere with that unless you're already being an outlaw, but then you're sticking your head out just to stop somebody else from winning, and then someone else is going to come arrest you anyway. Anyhow, Western Legends has got a lot going for it, I think, for, for a game of its type, but I it, it, it has not convinced me that sandbox games can overall be successful, because again, there tend to be serious issues with downtime, serious issues with the way the different paths intersect, the incentives often aren't jiggered properly, so I will say that the time I've had with Western Legends has been pleasant when the downtime hasn't been too bad. But at the end of the day, I, I question its longevity. Uh, but as an execution of the theme, it's pretty decent, and I'll probably play it another couple times before uh, before retiring, as it were. So that was Western Legends. What are your thoughts, yeah, Walker? I was going to say, if I play it again, I'm just going to keep in mind I'm going to play it as an experience rather than a game. I, I, I just feel as though there's, like you said, there's so many different ways to get points. I, I can't see, like you said before, there's, you can get your items to make actions better. So there are combos, but it just doesn't seem like there's this, you know, this flowing thing. You you pick a strategy and you go back and forth and you do it. There's, there's not this, you know, overlapping thing you can do. I, I don't know. I just, I find it odd. That's all. You commented actually after our first playing that, there are no combos, therefore it's not a game. Which I, well, no, I didn't say there's no combos. I just said it wasn't a game at all. It's just, it's just you just you randomly go around this map and and you get points however you want. Is what I was thinking. It's like you just go here, get some points. You go there, get some points. And there's there's nothing that like links everything together in this. You know, well, what, in, what, into a game. Well, <laughs> okay, first of all, I find your definition of a game to be problematic at best, and. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to bother poking at it too much because it will not withstand even basic scrutiny, but that's why I think the most interesting part is the interaction between the outlaw players and the law players because that's where you get more player interaction, you get a greater sense of risk reward, and you get different people intersecting with each other. If one player is being a prospector and another player is being a cattle rancher, they're not going to cross paths with each other either figuratively or literally, and so yes, there's less of a satisfying game experience there. I'm not going to argue that it's less of a game because there are lots of even good multiplayer solitary games out there. But yes, it, it, it has some issues. I wish that 
I have yet to see, as I say, I have yet to see a truly satisfying sandbox type game precisely because the more latitude you give to people in terms of pursuing radically different pursuits, you're going to have a more difficult time getting everyone together and having them all cross paths with each other. That was one of the great things about Root, for example. Root is not a sandbox game, but it remembered that in the midst of radical asymmetry, everyone needed to be on the same page and everyone needed to cross paths and interact in meaningful ways. That's a lesson that I think more games need to remember, and Western Legends, I think, tried, and when it succeeded, it's interesting, but most of the time it doesn't. This week I got to get Doom Rock back onto the table. I've only played it twice now. Uh, the first time I played it was about four years ago, and it was a large five-player game, and I didn't have a good experience. This time, uh, the rules explanation was a little bit more clear, and I got the rules down a little bit more. I'm sure not. I'm sure. I'm still not sure exactly how I feel about Assault on Doom Rock, but it did seem like much more of a of a of a better experience than did the first time, that's for sure. I can certainly understand why you're not ready for a full opinion yet. You seemed about half asleep, uh, and I don't think that that was the fault of the game. You'd been up since, what, 2 a.m. that morning? Yes. And this was late in the evening, so I can certainly understand that. But it is definitely the case that Assault on Doomrock lived up to its reputation, that I always say that it's brutally difficult. There's going to be a maximum of three fights. We were defeated in the first. It was close. It was a close thing. We almost pulled it out, but, but we got taken down by the armored skeletons. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I love Assault on Doomrock. I have had a real hard time introducing it to people, in part because of that terrible experience that you had before I was able to introduce people to, to Doomrock. Uh, five players is not even technically supported out of the box, but people sometimes insist on... Including everyone. Including everyone, and, and, and hacking games to do things they really shouldn't do. But Assault on Doomrock does a lot of clever things. I think one of the faults uh, that people have with it, and this is just an interesting trend I've noticed amongst people's reaction to games, if you tell people that they can spend an action to attack something and then give them a random attack roll and their attack whiffs or something, they're going to you know, think that it's random or to, to whatever degree. But if, on the other hand, you bake into the game mechanics a random determination to see if they're able to make a deterministic attack, namely an attack that has a fixed, fixed value, then if they're unable to get the attack off, people complain about randomness ten times as much. And this is definitely true in Doomrock. In Doomrock, if you can trigger an attack, it will necessarily do something very specific, and then there might be modifiers on top of that, but that, that that's more of a, a tangential thing. But if people get it in their head that they are committed to specifically doing a specific thing, and the dice allocation system won't let them do that specific thing, and they're not able to be flexible, they will be very bitterly disappointed. And I think that's a player problem, a game problem, but it's an interesting trend that I've noticed. I'm still a huge fan of Assault and Doomrock. This was, I'm now up to about a couple dozen playings now. I still haven't won, and uh, maybe someday, but I just adore the way the, the combat works. I've said a lot about Doomrock over the years, and uh, apparently eventually there might be a second expansion. Not that the game needs one, uh, but they've always done, they, they did a very interesting thing with uh, Doomrock's first expansion, Doopocalypse. So anyway, Tom Stasiak at uh, Beautiful Disaster Games, they're the ones who are going to be putting out Crisis at Steamfall. It was sold at Essen, and so it's going to be hitting backers uh, soon. We talked about Steamfall before, interesting game. Again, a little too much downtime, common refrain. But uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of their work, and I'm looking forward to what they put out in the future. So that was Assault on Doomrock. Quick note, uh, there's been an interesting discussion on our guild forum about representation of women in board games. 
Last week, I made a very specific complaint about Barbarians, the Invasion, and someone showed up and, and very uh, reasonably asked, well, you've said good things about Sacker Arms. Uh, I view the, the art in Sacker Arms as problematic. Would you like to comment on why you find them different? And so to refresh my memory, I got out some of the cards of Sacker Arms to, to really see if I was just blinded by the fact that I think Sacker Arms is a very interesting, innovative design and Barbarians, the Invasion is not. But I, you know, I stand by my evaluation that the art on Sacker Arms, which I said in the forum, is... You know, it represents anatomically plausible women dressed in ways that human women are, uh, are known to dress and not in any ways that defy gravity or physics, unlike Barbarians the Invasion. Anyway, in the process of looking at overall the art and uh, soliciting opinions on the art and seeing what people thought about it, someone actually said, oh yeah, that, game, that, that game looks great, and I understand you like it. Why don't you show it to me? And so we, we sat down and we played a game, and... It was it was great. It, like 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 I keep saying about Sacker Arms, the wonderful thing is it's not just different characters. It's just every time you sit down, you're gonna find out you're gonna find someone who's gonna have a different approach to a set of decks. This person that I was playing with, she she picked a couple of characters, and I figured, oh okay, I know how those characters work, precisely because I take them rather often, and I figured I knew what what was gonna happen. Well, no, she took cards completely different from the cards that I normally take for those characters, and that certainly contributed to the fact that I was completely pantsed. Uh, <laughs> It was a very enjoyable defeat because, again, with every game of Sacker Arms, you see new nuances in terms of the deck construction and how the, the cards came out. So that's another plug for Sacker Arms. Again, it looks like AEG is not going to be bringing over any of the expansions or any of the rebalancings that, that have done in subsequent editions, which is very sad. But Sacker Arms remains a tremendous value for the money, and in the realm of two-player card battling games, Sacker Arms is definitely a winner. Finally, I was in the mood for some solo gaming this week, so I pulled out Space Cadets Away Missions, which is not in any way really related to the Space Cadets, the two Space Cadets games put out by Stronghold, either Space Cadets or Space Cadets Dice Duel, the latter of which I quite recommend, the former of which I do not. But Space Cadets Away Missions is kind of a 1950s sci-fi answer to the co-op dungeon crawler kind of thing. You pick characters, you run around, you try to succeed in objectives, and, and uh, it's got a fascinating dice mechanism called Overkill, whereby excess successes on a test can then be spent on a menu of various things to do. So if you shoot something, your first success will result in a hit, but if you get multiple successes, you then get to start spending specific things based on what you were shooting at or what you were shooting with or what character you're using. It's a very, very interesting take on a sort of random success determination, and it definitely gives a lot of nuance to the decision-making. Uh, so I, I thoroughly recommend Space Cadets Away Missions. It was uh, a very, very interesting design by Dan Raspler and Al Rose. And of all the games, all the games in the Space Cadets line have been very, very different. Although this is the only one that was not done by the Engelsteins, who in turn are very, very interesting designers themselves. So that was Space Cadets Away Missions. And now for the news and why it doesn't matter. All my news is mostly about expansions. 51st State, a game we all love is getting an expansion called Allies. 51st State is a great card management, hand management game that is extra fun, especially because of the theme. I love this post-apocalyptic attack people, build your little village up type game. You've commented on this before, and honestly, paying a little bit more attention to it now, I really agree with you. I like the way Portal supports their games. They release expansions to those games that, that are amenable to expansions on a regular but not breakneck pace. If you compare it to the way that other companies, whether it's Stronghold or Fantasy Flight or whatever, they tend to go through bursts of attention for their games where they release two or three expansions over the course of a year, and then there are these long fallow periods, and then people start wondering what's going on with the state of the game, you know, making no reference to things like, you know, Arma uh, Star Wars or Armada or, or, or things like that. But... 
I really do appreciate the fact that when they put something out, it's usually about a year, and they'll put something out roughly about every year. They did that way with 50 Year Master Set about a year after the release of Alien Artifacts. They're putting out an expansion for that, even though it's one of the worst games ever. Okay, that's an exaggeration. It's only probably the worst game released last year that we're not talking about today. And uh, I, I respect that. It's definitely better than the Feast or Famine approach that we see from a lot of other publishers. And I, too, am looking forward to the Allies expansion set. Other things that caught my eye, uh, we are both huge fans of Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters. It is a flicking game with elements of strategy that has a ridiculous pun in the title. So, checking off all three boxes there is going to be WizKids' upcoming Star Trek Conflict in the Neutral Zone. That would be Conflict, C-O-N-L-F-I-C-K. Boo. Uh, (laughs) Do you you not approve of this pun? No, it's fine. (laughs) <laughs> you give it permission which to is, exist which is odd because I have a, yet another game that is a science fiction flicking game called Flick Fleet by Yuri Dice Games yes I noticed and uh, that one so we haven't seen shots yet of uh, Star Trek conflict in the neutral zone literally yeah but Flick Fleet on the other hand has these lovely different sh- uh, ship shapes no pun intended despite the fact that all of these games have puns in the title and I'm very much looking forward to see how it works. We, unfor- the, the one downside to FlickFleet is that it is a two-player-only design, and as we've both commented in the past, this is not, just, just by virtue of the social group that we run in, two-player games are not something we often find uh, easy to get to the table. But I'm very much looking forward to both of those. I, I, I definitely want to see them both in action and uh, see how they work. My other expansion is odd that I talked about. It's called, the, it's a Baron Park expansion, and it's odd because... We can't get our hands on a copy of Baron Park where we live or in this even part of the country. Uh, we've tried. It's because the bears won't let us. I know. The bears that run our cultural departments refuse to, to allow it to be imported. It, it's all about red tape. It's terrible. Maybe if we coat them in honey. Who knows? So that's Baron Park. It's getting an expansion. Baron Park is a great uh, puzzle lane game, much like in the vein of Cottage Garden and or Feast for Odin. And uh, you're building a little bear park, expanding the map out. I got to play it at the UK Games Expo, and I have not been able to get a copy since, so looking forward to picking up hopefully both at the same time. So my understanding is that the expansion will add Grizzlies. That was not already in the base game? I guess not. I don't remember. There were so many bears. I know there was polar bears. They had a bunch of bears. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that is the news and why it doesn't matter. So the feature game this week is called Discover Lands Unknown. This was put up uh, very recently by Corey Kaneska at Fantasy Flight Games. So let's start off right away, I think, by talking about Corey Kaneska, because I don't know that we've ever spent much time talking about any of his designs. He's been putting out designs with Fantasy Flight for a relatively long time. He's associated with uh, a number of... With Imperial Salt, Not Forgotten Realms, what's the space one called? Forbidden Stars, Forbidden Stars, Forbidden Stars, Descent, I think he's got his name on. Well, he's involved in the second edition of Descent. Uh, he was involved a little bit with uh, the X-Wing Miniatures game, but who wasn't. Uh, but he did StarCraft, he did Tide of Iron, he did Battlestar Galactica, he did Rune Wars. And, uh, I mean, to my mind, he's, just to just to make things very clear, I have not really enjoyed any of his designs with the exception of Two and a Half. 
The two games that he's done that I think are reasonably decent are Death Angel, which I falsely in the past attributed to the Saddlers. I don't know why. It was a weird mental block for years. I falsely attributed that, that to the Saddlers. But he did Space Hulk Death Angel, which is very uncharacteristic compared to his other designs in that it is a relatively minimalistic, simple design. But it is a brutally hard co-op, which I know is uh, up Walker's Alley in, in normal instances. But it's a relatively stripped-down design with only a, a thematic link to Space Hulk itself. It's a you know multiplayer, uh, pure co-op. The other game that I that I, I think is, is pretty decent that he designed is Gears of War, the board game. I think mostly, though, Gears of War was ahead of its time in the way that it used AI decks, in the way that it used the player deck, in the way that it used hand management. But I think that most of its key innovations, specifically the way that AI works, has been done better in subsequent designs. Among them, for example, Assault on Doomrock, but... Uh, it's still, I think, worth playing. Rune Wars, I kind of like, but it's a little too long for a game where you can effectively get knocked out very early on in the game. You know, maybe it's one of those things where player elimination should have been, you know, an end condition or something like that. But it's it's very difficult to recover, and it's a little more Baroque than it needs to be. But, you know, as far as complicated dudes on a map games, you could do a lot worse. And, in fact, you could do a lot worse even amongst games designed by Cory Kaneska, published by Fantasy Flight. But, you know... Uh, he's also done uh, Star Wars Rebellion, which I know you like yep, a great deal. Star Wars Rebellion, and like we already said, uh, uh, Forbidden Stars is a fantastic game, even though Mark has not had a chance to play it yet. I'm definitely got to get... I haven't played either of them, I in part get... because they were designed by Corey Kaneska. Well, <laughs> well, hopefully I can talk you into one day. We'll get one both of those played, because I think you'll enjoy them. Oh, both. please, not on the same day. I might want to kill myself. I had to play Discovery and Assault on Doomrock in the same day. <laughs> Okay, all right, so let's talk about Discovery, uh, Discover Lands Unknown. So let's talk about the gimmick first, all right? So the gimmick behind Discover Lands Unknown is that every game box is unique. There's a pool, or shall we say a universe, of different terrain types, of different landmark types, of different characters, of different items, and each box will have an algorithmically determined subset of those, such that no two boxes will be alike in the universe. So, the game that we're talking about, the game that we played, might not be exactly the same as the game that you played. That having been said, I have, div I have consumed what spoilers I can, and it doesn't look like the other games are fundamentally different yeah. in any way. And I'm not, spoilers, moilers, like this is, yeah, this is yet another scythe thing where, you know, they're going to use the word spoilers when they're not actually spoilers. They're just game rules. That's getting kind of pathetic. Well, okay, look, we have a, we have a fundamental disagreement about this. I am a little bit more sensitive to those who would rather not be spoiled. Whereas you think that anything that relates to the game is just open information. I think that anything that's in a core rulebook rule can't reasonably be described as spoilers. Whereas you think that everything is, is open season, and if you'd rather not hear about it, then you're somehow a moral deficient. I just feel as though if it's not a legacy game, then it's not spoilers. This is Why not? not? A, just because. It's not, just because? Just because. It's not, that's a terrible it's, reason. It's not a permanent. It's not going to be unique to your game. And... So why why how how can it be a spoiler? Okay, because let's let's look at three three different games, each of which might have the term spoiler applied to them. All right, Gloomhaven, Side of the Rise of Fenris, and Discover Lands Unknown. Okay, in Gloomhaven, if I start talking about a class that you haven't unlocked or a scenario that you haven't gotten to yet. That's definitely a spoiler. Okay. In, in some games, some people might never get those characters unlocked. Therefore, it will be unique to your game. 
They might never draw that card that unlocks that character. They might not play it enough to get to that character, or they just might not unlock that particular character type. That seems to me a perverse argument, because your claim then is, because they might never experience it, Therefore, it's a spoiler. Whereas, or have, or whereas, not, or not, have not experienced it yet. Well, right, but which is which is usually the opposite of the justification of, uh, of of avoiding spoilers, because one typically avoids spoilers so as to avoid being spoiled for something they will eventually experience, as opposed to being told about something they never will. So I'm I'm a bit confused well, as to your rationale. I'm just here. saying, in Rise of Fenris and in Discovery, these are like you. Everything is available in the first playthrough. Like, there's nothing that is going to be hidden. It's all out there on the very first playthrough. There's nothing hidden or surprising well, no. later or Well, okay, well that but that's just flatly not true because in your first game of Rise of Fenris or in your first game of Discover, it is impossible to see all that there is in the box. And they are parceled out in a specific way, and we'll talk specifically about how it's parceled out in Discover. And some people and when they're talking about how they don't want to be spoiled, some people want to discover those things only at the instant that they are parceled out. They want to experience them at the proper pace in the same way that people would rather not be spoiled as to the contents of a movie plot. They want to experience those elements in the proper context. And I'm not necessarily saying that an aversion to spoilers is justified. I'm just trying to articulate the rationale for some people who would rather experience them in certain contexts and not others. And so if a reviewer, for example, when reviewing Rise of Fenris, just puts out a picture of all the components in the hidden boxes or just explains right at the outset what happens in scenario six or what have you, the objection is that some people would rather experience those at game six and not be told about it prior to starting game one. Are you at all sympathetic to, to I these am, desires? Well, I am. If, then why are they listening to a review on uh, of Fenris? <laughs> because some people <laughs> some people would rather hear a review without specific spoilers. Oh, I see. We mean like a review whether or not they want to buy it, I suppose. All right. So let's talk about Discover Lands Unknown. This is a five-scenario game. So you have to go through the normal thing. Cause I got the normal. Five, okay, sorry. Sorry. We have to go through the normal thing. So th- the sort of genre in which Discover Lands Unknown is situated is... I think its rough analogs are the kind of exploration-slash-discovery games like Seventh Continent or Time Stories or Unlock. Those are, those are the rough kinds of analogs and cousins that, that what I would see there. These are games where you tend to be wandering around, looking at various points of interest, poking various hotspots, trying to find keywords or trying to find key cards that will then let you proceed to the next stage in a particular narrative element. That's roughly how I would situate Discover Lands Unknown uh, with respect to those, those those other two games. Does that sound fair that, to you? No, that sounds good. Okay, so why don't why don't you why don't you then if you've if you've prepared your traditional Walker unhelpful, here's what you do in the game. Why don't you go ahead? Well, so I'm going to put you in the mindset that I was in when I played Discover Lands Unknown. Some psychological thoughts and deep moral revelations, like waterboarding. How bad can it be? <laughs> this table's a mere 300 pounds. I'm sure I can flip it. <laughs> if I concentrate hard on this board game, can I make it spontaneously combust? <laughs> okay, now being serious. This, this, you know, uh, what, what I do and, you know, what, what do you do in a particular game? I usually use this when I uh, teach a board game. I give a very brief, you know, like, this is what you do in the board game. So, like, when I'm explaining the rules, they can sort of link everything together. So, what do I have here? This is, so what do you do? 
So radio stations, if you're triggered by the word arbitrary, you can begin your fade here. In Discover Lands Unknown, you set off in an arbitrary direction because the game gives you none. And every turn you decide whether or not you're going to collect food or water because you don't have enough actions to do both. And then during the night phase, we find out if you guessed right or wrong. And then after wandering around randomly for a while, you'll find a landmark, which will allow you to advance the story, sending you to yet another landmark that maybe you've uncovered it already, maybe you haven't, and if you haven't, guess what? Off you go and repeat phase one again. Normally here is where I'd cut in and say that Walker is being unfair. I, I confess in this instance I am not able to do that. Because there are basically, I, I tried to parse this out, so there are basically three things that you do in the game. You, you There's exploration, there's crafting, and then there's combat. And honestly, I don't like any three of those. They're really not done very well. So let, let, let's break this down. The exploration part, Walker's exactly right. At the start of the game, you're given a vague kind of gold goal from the scenario card. You've got a whole bunch of face-down map tiles. And you don't have the first earthly notion as to where the landmark that might let you move forward in the scenario considerations happens to be. Because they're all face-down tiles. So pick a random direction, go off, flip up a tile, see what happens. Now that doesn't have what you want. All right, go off. Someone else flips up another tile. Go see what happens. So that's I mean, so that's one thing you do. You just start trying to flip up a whole bunch of tiles, looking for random stuff to poke. And then when you find something to poke, you go poke it. And maybe you'll find a shotgun. Maybe you'll find some stone. Maybe you'll find nothing. And uh, I'd be okay, I'd be more okay with this if I had a broader sense of knowing what was going on. But Discover tries to put you in this situation where you don't know where you are, you don't know why you showed up there, and these all may be good thematic elements for some works of fiction, but there's not enough narrative in Discover to really give that any teeth, and so at the end of the day, it's just leading to the sense of nothing mattering and all of it being arbitrary. So I really do think that the way that the narrative works, which is to say there's not much of it, feeding into this arbitrary element of exploration really serves to give you a sense of pointlessness and arbitrariness to everything that's going on. I agree. Feed your workers the game. That's what I've dubbed it. Because... That's all, that's what the mechanic is. So if you have a mechanic like in Caverna or in Agricola, you know, you have to constantly worry about your worker, you know, feeding your people, but yet there's another whole game onto that. In this one, that's it. That is the game is get, you know, making sure yourself is fed, searching around, making sure you have food. And then while, on, while you're doing that, you find that you just happen to find these other things. That's, that's it. So then there's these other things, which is where the crafting element comes into it. There are these, basically these recipe cards for various items. On your first playthrough, you don't know what these items do. And honestly, that was one of the sparks of discovery for this game, no pun intended. You actually do get to find out what all these things do as you make them. Because, as I say, the recipes tell you what you need in order to make them, but they won't tell you what the item does. So in your first game, you're making all this stuff and you're finding out what they do. That's... Kind of, you know, there's a little bit of interest there. there I, I found that, I would say, semi-engaging. And, you know, chasing down the requisite resources gives you a small degree of direction because you flip over a map tile and it doesn't have the landmark that you're looking for, but it has some wood and you have this recipe card in your hand that wants for wood. Hey, go get some wood. That's something to do. 
but mostly the crafting feeds into the combat because allow me to, and I think this is, this doesn't really constitute a spoiler because different boxes will have different scenarios. And, and honestly, there's so little meat to this that I don't really think it can constitute a spoiler and I'm very spoiler reverse. The scenarios more or less amount to poke landmarks until the boss shows up, kill the boss, the scenario is done. That's, that, that's, that's definitely how it worked for three of the four scenarios we had. One of the scenarios, it kind of inverted the order a little bit. It was wander on, poke some landmarks, the boss shows up, kill the boss, and then build some more stuff, and then you're done. Which, you know, doesn't exactly classify as novel. It's just shuffling the, sa the same order around a bit. And the combat system itself is fine. It's, it's, it's okay. It gets the job done. It's very stripped down. It's certainly not very thematic because you can use any number of weapons. Like, it was not uncommon in our game to, you know, be weird, wielding a, uh, one assumes, a shotgun that shoots poisoned spears and tomahawks all the while hiding in a cage because uh, that's how fighting works in this game. There's an element where different players can cooperate with each other in combat, and that was fine, too. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about combat when we start talking about Scenario 5, because there's some Scenario 5 stuff to talk about. But Yeah, Scenario 5. I do have also some good points. Uh, like you said, the combat was very quick. I The, the night cards, they had some, par some parts of them I liked. I like, like every turn you're fed so many stamina points, and that's how many actions you can do during the turn. Every movement along this hex grid is an action, you know, flipping up maps. And there's different train types that cost more action points. So when you over flip over night card, it'll say something like, oh, you had a good sleep, a bad sleep. Were you out of fire or were you not out of fire during the night? And you'll get more or less uh, stamina points. I thought that was semi-interesting. I, I kind of like the action selection mechanism too. That's basically what the, the, the stamina system feeds. It was a little bit more... Not really bookkeeping, but it was a little bit more difficult to keep track of than you would imagine. So if at the start of the day you've got eight points of stamina... It's tracked by this little dial that you have on your character placard. And you're basically left with two options. You either take all your turn keeping a, a running tally in your head as you're doing it, or after every time you spend stamina, you stop to adjust the dial. And to be frank, neither of them was, was terribly user-friendly. If you stop after, after every action, it's going to get really tedious. I move one space, I adjust the dial. I move another space, I adjust the dial. I move another space, I adjust the, 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 adjust the dial. You know, you're going back and forth between the board and your little placard thing. It's, it's awkward. On the other hand... We So we, we largely chose to abandon that, and as a result, we would frequently lose count of what we were doing. And for a relatively simple game with very simple actions and very simple action costs, it was you know just a little bit more upkeep than was strictly necessary. We'd be like, okay, wait, I moved two spaces, and then I flipped over these two tiles, and then you populate the tiles. How many actions am I at? Okay, that was four. All right, five. Wait, or was that seven? Ugh. And again, if you were doing something a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more involved it would give you a chance to pause and adjust the dial and think about where you're going next. But mostly we're just rushing through because the game didn't give us any reason to pause because everything we were doing was so arbitrary and pointless. The other thing that I thought was all right was the wound system. You take four wounds and you're dead. But uh, your three wounds that you can take before you die can all be different wounds. And your little player board let you track that. So you could get a hunger wound or a thirst wound or a poison wound or an actual combat wound. And in the game, you had different ways to heal different wounds. So I thought that was very interesting, right? They all weren't just generic wounds, but... That part was really nice. And 
if you are told that you need to eat food in one of these night cards or become hungry, you have a wound that corresponds to being hungry. And then later on, if you find food, if you're able to do that before that hunger wound is parlayed into a serious wound, you can undo that and you're okay. So that really does drive a sense of, okay, now I really need to get food before this becomes a more serious injury. And that part was kind of neat. I did enjoy that element, and the way that wounds are, are handled is, I agree, one of the stronger aspects of the game. It was frightening close to Seventh Continent, right? I have written here, it's like someone took Seventh Continent and just really enjoyed wandering around, so they wanted a Seventh Continent with no story, and they really just wanted to be able to have to eat after every turn. <laughs> All right, so let, let's circle back to this gimmick then, because I have a, I'm genuinely befuddled. I'm, I'm very rarely... Usually if I like something or if I don't like something, I have a good sense of why. Or when a designer does something, I can usually try to infer why they tried to do it. In this case, though, this whole issue of every game being unique, I genuinely am confused as to why they did it. I have a tinfoil hat line here. Go for it. My tinfoil hat line is Keyforge is about to come out. Keyforge is potentially a very large cash cow for this company. It is from Fantasy Flight. It is yet another, the same sort of vein that every single deck is going to be different. They might have said, you know, we need to make sure this gets released properly without any flaws. We need to know that we have the a way to produce this, a way to get something out that is unique every box and we want to make sure that it's smooth what have we got you know while well, we've our in-house designer he's got this half-cocked idea let's you know issue out this game see how you know make sure we've got the flow right make sure we can get every box unique make sure we've got it down pat and boom there we go it's working now we know that this key forge which we think is going to be a big money maker is going to go out smoothly how's that sound for a tinfoil hat explanation. That's a fascinating supposition. I have no earthly idea if it bears any relation to reality. I, I basically have two two suppositions of my own. One of them is kind of naive and one of them is kind of cynical. So I, I don't really think that either of them is necessarily <laughs> more likely to be accurate. The naive one is that they thought, they genuinely thought that there is a positive value in the play experience of knowing that my play experience is going to be somehow different from everyone else's play experience. I just don't think that that's accurate. So that, that, that's the sort of optimistic explanation that they thought that there's some virtue in this. But as a player, I don't get any warm glow of satisfaction knowing that some other person's box halfway around the world is different. All that I care about is the play experiences that are offered to me. And basically, what I get the, what I get the sincere sense they did was they, they, they designed this sort of ecosystem of events and terrains and things like that, and all of that, all of that all in, might have offered a fair degree of variety. But then they chopped it down into such a small a small morsel that there's really not enough to engage. So, so we've talked about how, uh, I'll get back to the super cynical uh, explanation in a, in a minute, but we talked about how we don't really like the exploration, the crafting is kind of okay until you know what everything does, and the combat is, is very simple, but it, it gets the job done. But what, what this is all in service of is a four-scenario game where two scenarios will operate on the same map, although the tiles will be shuffled around a little bit. But as a result, when you're playing the second scenario on the same map, you're vaguely like, okay, I think I remember where the shotgun is. I think it's over here. Whatever. Let's just run around and find it. Oh, all these items I've seen before. Uh, okay, flip over the map tiles, rush to that. Okay, I think I remember what that does. So in a way, I feel like I'm being penalized for not remembering all the boring, arbitrary nonsense that happened in the prior game. But you're basically just reshuffling around the same nodes. The same things happen, just in slightly different order. 
not engaging. So you basically have two unique playings in this box. And this is a full-priced big box game. We'll talk about Scenario 5 in a minute. But I really didn't feel like there was much variety between the, the different scenarios and the different maps. That's even ignoring the fact that the different maps didn't add a whole heck of a lot to begin with. And this is all because of that gimmick. Exactly. It? Right, so it's not only it's not even adding to the game, it's taking away from the game. Precisely. So then there's the cynical explanation. The cynical explanation is maybe they thought what was going to happen was someone was going to like the core mechanisms. Now, whoever these people are, I don't know, because the core mechanisms of Discover are, are you know, as we said, not, not satisfying or engaging, at least as far as we're concerned. And then they might finish the four and a half being charitable scenarios in the box and say, I want more. And then they might go out and buy another box just to see what the other stuff is. So maybe they thought this was a way to get more purchases of the same uh, same players. This is kind of along the lines of your explanation of Keyforge because they, they certainly expect people to buy multiple decks of Keyforge. I don't know if anyone's doing that. I don't know if, if there are people who are sufficiently enamored of Discover that they want to go and get multiple boxes. But part of me has to wonder if that's what they anticipated some people doing. Yep. This is another line I have under the same thing is this game wins the Seafall Award for 2018. <laughs> another game that came out just under gimmick alone and and failed, you know, in every way. I would say as much as I didn't like Seafall, there are many, many things that happened in Seafall that were vastly more interesting it's, than that ever happened in any playing of Discover. Oh, it's true. But I just mean, I think this is going to be another box that these game stores are going to be stuck with. It's possible. Once. I mean, I, look, I don't know how well or, 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 or badly it's going to sell, but it's... I will say that the artwork is very nice. So the character artwork is is, is lovely. It's got a very sort of uh, striking cartoony style. Some of the artwork, this is a minor note, on the card backs is exceptionally striking. This sort of uh, skull moon drawing on the back of the night cards I, I was quite taken with, and I think that it, des- it belongs in a, in a better game. Uh, but the rest of the graphic design is is pretty mediocre. I normally don't complain about this, but a lot of the text is way too small. You know, the numbers on the bottom of the landmarks on the map are so tiny that I had a serious difficulty reading them. And normally I don't have any problem with usability like that. So I don't know how well it's, it's, it Discover is going to sell. I, just because it has nothing going for it doesn't mean it's not going to move. Shall we talk briefly about Scenario 5? As brief as we can make it, please. So, so 1 through 4 has little to no story. Like you're going out, it's like oh, get, oh, I, I guess I can't even I can't even talk about the story because, like you said, there there are some. I don't want to spoil the little story that there is, but needless to say, it can be accurately and fully summarized in literally one sentence. That's how little of it there is. So, and then they say, now you've got everything. It's it's scenario five. This is the one that you can play over and over again. This is the replayable one. Aren't you lucky? <laughs> And so you all start on the same space, and now it's a battle royale. You know, you know, everyone fans out and Hunger Games it out. You know, for as quick as possible. I would hope, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we uh, just just to demonstrate what legitimate journalists we are. We read the rules of how Scenario Five works, and even halfway through Scenario One, we're like, "This is going to be terrible," but. We gamely gave it a shot just to make absolutely sure. And it's even more ridiculous than we initially anticipated because whatever amount of engagement you get from poking the random landmarks, and like I say, narratively and mechanically, there's practically no joy to be had in any of that. But they rip all that out in Discover for Scenario 5 because instead of 
you know, finding the place that might give you the map that leads you to the next, uh, that, that if you run into the next place, you'll find a hatchet or something. Instead, it's like, oh, here's a gun. No text associated, just, oh, well, when you go this poke this landmark, just draw from this deck. Here's a gun. Or here's a mortar. Or here's something else. And it was, it was, it was so absurd. It was one of those games that was, the last time I laughed that much in the context of a game being so absurd was actually Starship Samurai. Because, like, I can't believe the designers are expecting us to enjoy this nonsense. So I, I had a good time playing it, in part because I knew it was the last time I'd ever have to play Discover Lands Unknown ever again. It's true. It's like five is finally here and we'll finally be finished with this. Yeah, I was. So so again, just to, just to reiterate, there are four scenarios that actually have, let's charitably say, scenarios attached to them. One and two both use the same map and then you move to a different map for three and four. I would say that scenarios two and four, which is the second second scenario on the same map, was just a tedious exercise in rote, uh, rote memory recall for the most part. It was like the, the worst. It's like redoing the worst scavenger hunt you've ever done just with the steps in, in, in a mixed up order. But even scenarios one and three didn't give me a whole lot to go on. It was, and honestly, Walker's exactly right when he compared it to the things like Seventh Continent. Seventh Continent has much more narrative. I didn't like it very much, but there was much more story to be had and a much larger pool of things to do and see. Time Stories is the same way. Time Stories is a much better narrative. It uses cards in a novel way, so things you find out have these little moments of discovery, even though I find Time Stories is, is largely puzzle-driven, and I don't really like puzzles, but Discover Lands Unknown doesn't even have that. It's just purely mechanistic and just going through the motions. Unlock also has novel uses of cards. These little moments are like, oh, that's what they're doing. That's kind of cute. Whereas I never had the, any of those moments in Discover Lands Unknown at all. Well, it had one mechanism, and it was pulled directly out of... Uh... Seventh Continent, the one where if you have this particular item and you do this thing, you get to add to your number, which is directly from Seventh Continent. But to their credit, Seventh Continent, Time Stories, and Unlock, that in addition to having that very simple sort of, well, now you have found this sort of this literal key or this figurative key that allows you to access cards differently, they have these weird little sideways to get at cards where you'd find these little clues that would lead to a genuine puzzle, and the genuine puzzle would then tell you to interact with the mechanics in interesting ways, and I don't want to spoil any of those, but, you know, we were really scrutinizing unlock cards and spinning them around and trying to figure out how to do things, Time Stories has had me do the same things in different scenarios, none of this joy of discovery and discover lands unknown. I didn't enjoy the exploration. There was nothing to see. There was nothing to do. It was... It was yeah, no, it was like when, when we finished the first game and we both experienced this, we just sort of sat and looked at the table and and were... And and didn't know. Yeah. It, like, it was this weird feeling of what, what just happened. Like... Who is this for? Yeah. Why was it done this way? What is the gimmick in service of? And in what way is this supposed to be appealing? These are, these are genuine questions. I sincerely do not know the answers to these questions. All that I know for sure is that I'm thoroughly glad to have this thing behind us. And is like I have at the bottom here, it's one of the main reasons why I want to do this podcast. I'm sick of these games that are being hyped. This is like second on the hotness list yep. on BGG. It's, and I'm tired of games being put out like this and people putting money out to buy games that are like this, that are garbage. And that is Discover. <laughs> Lands unknown. Game of the year. So the so the topic this week is overused themes. And what do we mean by this? We mean all sorts, you know, the you know, is it based around zombies or is it based around anything? And and uh, our minds can come up with wonderful and unique things. This is why death is truly a sad thing. 
I went dark awful fast, didn't it? So I'm just going to generalize. Can we circle back to your existentialism there? What? <laughs> death, is, death is a tragedy because of the capacity of our imagination? Yeah, that... I just think that's what makes, you know, why we think, why I think death is such a sad thing. Because, you know, everyone's such a unique individual and, and their personality okay. and, and what their minds can think of and what we can come up with. And when that is extinguished, that's why it is truly a sad thing. So you think that overused themes is kind of like a premature death? Sure. <laughs> so why why are themes overused? I have a feeling it's just due, even though we can come up with all sorts of different ideas and different theories and different uh, different uh, themes for games, it all comes down to money. And, and these companies want to be able to sell to a wider audience. They're going to pick themes that are going to appeal to the to the biggest group of people to 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 ensure they have profit to give credit as much credit as possible this again is the possibly overly naive overly charitable interpretation there is a bit of a virtue in these sort of cliched well-worn themes in that it lowers the barrier for entry and by extension, if, if the mechanics are even remotely connected or, or, or plausible with the core theme, you're not going to have to spend a lot of time explaining why things work the way they do. So let's start with zombies, for example, because that's definitely got to be in your, 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 your top end list of overused themes. If the game has a whole bunch of zombies, I, and they don't have to be miniatures, they could be represented by anything, then you don't need... It's not going to be a shock when you start telling people how you run away from zombies, how you attack zombies. When the shotgun shows up, people aren't going to be blown away. They're not going to be confused as to why it's there. Uh, you know, same thing with with uh, a whole bunch of other things. Tropes are useful for a reason, yeah, and I think that's one, yeah, one of the. Nor are the they going to be you know held back about killing these things. Or I mean, they're they're you know mindless, oh, sure, already but, dead things, right? So they're not going to have this you know you know held back. You know, say, oh, I don't like shooting things. I don't like killing other people. Like, these are zombies. They're already dead, so let's open up on them type thing. They're not going to have any misgivings about killing them. Sure, that may be one of the reasons why it's such a well-worn theme, but it's just any well-worn theme. If it's the kind of game where, and I'm guilty of this too, I sometimes find myself launching into the game explanation without a, a necessary prelude about what the theme is. If the theme is so incredibly obvious and cliched, you can just set out the components and as you're setting up, people will immediately see and they will start making inferences about what kind of game it is. And when it comes to zombie games, people have a natural interpret because most zombie movies are basically the same. And many zombie games thematically, at least narratively, are basically the same. And so you don't really need to, to, to stress too much about it. That having been said, there are some uh, zombie games that I think so just to be clear, just because a game has an overused theme, that doesn't necessarily mean we don't like it. Uh, I mean, Walker's a, a fan of Zombicide and I'm not, but setting all that aside, I think it is possible to give slight tweaks to overused themes, and sometimes that makes things all the better. For example, one of my favorite uh, zombie games, probably my favorite zombie game is City of Horror, precisely because in City of Horror, you don't need to worry about the zombies, you need to worry about your fellow players, because they're the dangerous ones. The zombies are mostly a backdrop. It's mostly the fact that your your fellows are going to shank you rather than the zombies are going to eat you. So sometimes the cliche gives you the opportunity for something truly novel. When you see that a game is a zombie game, does that make you less or more interested in getting it? Less. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to go off, before we go on, like, actual genre, how about historical? Like, when historical games, like, is that a different category of overused themes? Like, if we're going to, like, say, World War II games or, or you know, is that different than a 
fictional having just theme. A minor sidebar, having just discussed zombies, what on earth makes you think of World War II, Walker? I don't know. It could be a fantastic release that came out this week, Axes and Allies Zombies. Don't say it's fantastic. You haven't played it yet. <laughs> it's not even at a shrink. It's not I'm, even at a shrink. I'm so waiting to play this game. It's going to be fantastic. Here, here, here's something though that I, I, I don't know that you know about me, Walker. I have never played a single Axis and Allies game. Really? Well, then you're in for a treat. And I can't think of a better way to get introduced to Axis and Allies than with <laughs> Axis and Allies zombies. But anyway, uh, yeah. So Axis and Allies. Zombies is definitely sort of the the intersection of two incredibly overused themes, namely zombies and World War II, because I think it really depends on the historical conflict being modeled. Some historical conflicts are overrepresented and some historical conflicts are underrepresented. And I I say this primarily coming from a a war gamer background, right? So World War II is definitely overrepresented. That's one of the reasons why I really appreciate Quartermaster General 1914. World War I is seriously underrepresented in a lot of war games precisely because a lot of the traditional kinds of war games that consumers like to play the most don't lend themselves to World War I recreation very well. Trench warfare is a very strange thing and doesn't lend itself to your standard hex encounter. Certainly not tactical or squad level, uh, and sometimes not even on a strategic level doesn't make a whole lot of sense to model some of the conflicts of World War I. So... Uh, the same the same thing is true of Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic Wars have been done to death. Now, a salient difference is, and this is just due to preference, much like the person who's always looking for the next zombie game, even though the zomb- zombie genre has been uh, overdone, I will always play another Napoleonic Warfare game, but I'm getting sick to death of World War II games. So, again, as we say, just because a theme is overused doesn't mean that it's necessarily something we're sick of. So, Napoleonic Wars is definitely overused, but I want more of. World War II is the other way around. Gotcha. I just felt so that it... For me, mentally, it's completely different. Like really, I, I don't know why. I was just thinking of it today. It's like it's like it's a historical. Because I, whenever I, when like when uh, uh, Axe and Allies nineteen fourteen came out, I did like hours of research on World War One, and and these games for me are are just are different. You know, historical games. I don't, know, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this. It's just the fact that okay, well, even let, though I know that, you know, there's hundreds of World War II games, I just feel like it gives me a different feeling because it's an actual thing that happened rather than these these fantasy-type games where it's just the same story-type thing over and over again. Maybe it's the fact that this is something that actually happened compared to just, you know, generic fantasy or zombies or whatever it is. Okay, so let's see what level of verisimilitude you require, because I think we can agree that the verisimilitude expressed in games of Axis and Allies is not particularly good, right? They're not very historical. No, you know, no, no, no. They're, not, they don't like, yeah, they're not an exact representation or, not or even reenactment close. or anything like not that. Not even remotely close. Not so remotely close. what about, and this is another overused thing that I have here, the impress slash travel with some famous European Euro game. Now, we both like Marco Polo, yeah. but there's literally hundreds of these things. Yeah, Shakespeare and... It's like, pick a famous historical, uh, like, Lorenzo de' Medici or Leonardo da Vinci or Christopher Columbus or whoever, right? And the goal of the game is to amass enough prestige to impress this person or you're traveling with them, so whatever. Lewis and Clark. Exactly. There's just endless, endless versions of these. And... This was, uh, you know, people often talk about the, the the sort of trend in the 90s of having the stern-looking European dude on, on the, the front cover, uh, you know, as epitomized by Kalis. I think the Kalis stern dude, I, most people agree, is the sternest of all the stern European dudes. Uh, but does that 
does that get a pass from you on the same notion, or is or are those games just one step too far removed from historical? No, that would be removed because it doesn't actually. It's not reenacting the history of that person or or going through what they did. Sometimes it is, but not not exactly. I think, and I, I'm not going to press the point, so we can move on after yes. this. I don't know that there is as much difference between what happens in, say, a game of the Voyages of Marco Polo, where people start out in Venice and find their way out east, and they get stuff along the way. I don't know that that is significantly less accurate than the kind of fantasy that, that happens in an average game of Axis and Allies. But maybe this is just me, just the old grognard in me uh, no, no, I'm not crapping saying that, all I'm over not, non-war I'm games, not saying but. that there's a huge divide between the two, but there is, I, in my mind, there is a slight divide. Okay. So what other kinds of uh, themes do you think are overused? I have Cthulhu down here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? what? Also, what annoys me is that it's always the bad version of Cthulhu. It's the version where Yig shows up and you shoot him in the face with a shotgun, which is not a very interesting version of Cthulhu as far as I'm concerned. I've said this before. Like, the actual Lovecraftian fear of the unknown, I don't know that you can do that really well in a board game, but it is certainly the case that I don't think any board game has tried. It's always been the pulpier version. I actually am willing to give sort of the half-pass to Cthulhu Wars precisely because of how utterly ridiculous it is. You know, they just go completely off the deep end at that, at, at that point. Well, that's what I, we played. This is not even done. Uh, what was the name of that game that we just played? Uh, right when we we played Roy's a Moloch, it can be considered a Cthulhuish type game, Victorian style. You know, they're summoning demons, but I thought they did a better job of it because you know you weren't always going against the big, like you said, the big giant monster at the end. There's sort of like just the minions that you're always taking care of, and I thought that was a better way to take care of it. Much like you know the big blockbuster movies that don't do so well because they're always going against the giant monster as opposed to the ones that do do well. They're just going against, you know, like the minor villain, and it's a lot more appealing and, and fun to watch than these other ones. Hmm. I, I would have personally situated Rise of Moloch as more of a kind of Victorian steampunky thing as opposed to Cthulhu-esque. But I guess, I, I guess you're right. There's a fair amount of, of, of occult uh, stuff going on, and it's supposed to be ancient, terrible evil. So I, you're right. It's it's minor, but it's, it's it's just the same sort of feel where you know you're not atta- you're not fighting the you know the giant demons all the time like you are in these other Cthulhu games. Good point. You're just fighting you know the smaller minions, and it's a lot more compelling than it is than these other games. Another theme that I've got here is what I call bad D and D, namely just outfit a whole bunch of adventures and go murder a whole bunch of things. It doesn't take much to just give a slight twist on the theme and then you can you can get a little bit more mileage out of it because admittedly assault on doomrock is basically a bad D&D theme but they make fun of themselves in the process every item is of doom your heroes aren't noble they're 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 despicable lowlifes and so that kind of helps things this, the same thing was true of dungeon degenerates you know sometimes just a slight step off off the beaten track will do you well uh the same thing is is true of claustrophobia you know it's not quite straightforward D&D it's got a weird sort of uh, Reforma- post-Reformation kind of uh, church versus demons where the demons may in fact be the good guys vibe to it. I also prefer when, you know, games that could have been bad D&D are instead in contemporary settings. It's it's a very rare, actually. It's, it's strange how a small minority of games are actually in contemporary settings. I'm talking about games like Seal Team Flicks or Omega Protocol, which could have just been sort of generic uh, dungeon crawl themes, but instead decided to make things a little more, a little bit more interesting than, than they could have been. I appreciate it when developers and designers go that little extra step and say, well, does it have to be the 
nth iteration this year of the same exact theme, so... Well, even Gloomhaven, I know it's the same sort of, you know, grab your sword, grab your dagger, but at least he like he's created a whole... It's not the what I have down here, the token fantasy or Tolkien fantasy. <laughs> the same sort of, you know, line up every time. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm willing to give Gloomhaven a half pass because you're right, it's not the standard stuff. Yeah. On the other hand, and this is, again, a, a purely uh, uh, personal issue, I'm usually willing to give... Mm-hmm more of a pass to sci-fi stuff. Part of that is just because I prefer sci-fi. But I am getting very, very tired. Uh, This is kind of a thematic element of games that are not 4X games claiming that they're 4X games. So we talked about this in the context of Alien Artifacts, how it says it it tries to have the trappings of 4X, but it's really not at all like a 4X It uses the words, though, Mark. I know, I know. It uses the words. Similarly, on the front cover of Master of the Galaxy, it has the 4Xs. But it's not a 4X game by any stretch of the imagination, not even remotely. And I'm, you know, I have no problem with a game just being a sci-fi game where you're just going and doing whatever it is you happen to be doing in that game, whether it's resource management or tablet building or whatever. But just because it's a space game and just because there are other, you know, a whole bunch of alien races doesn't mean you have to pretend it's a 4X game. Speaking of 4X games, can we do can we do uh, Starfares of Catan's 4X? Because you're exploring the planets. You're, yes. You're, ex- you're exterminating the other players when you, like, when you... Can you blow up their ships? Well, uh, no. Well, pirates do based on yeah. how good your guns are. Exactly, well, it's definitely yeah. more. Yeah, okay. And uh, exploit the resources. Yeah, you're trying. Oh, and, yeah, and you're right. If Starfares of Catan were being released today, it would be billed as a 4X. Sweet. You're absolutely right. That's fantastic. I'd never thought of it that way. Oh, geez. Well, it's, it, I think we can both agree. It's definitely much more of a 4X than either Alien Artifacts or Master of the Galaxy. <laughs> it's true. 100%. <laughs> it's so true. Oh, boy, that's scary. What else? I got Star Wars. I think I'm done with Star Wars. Oh, I didn't even think of Star Wars because I was done with Star Wars a long time ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Under the aegis of sci-fi. The other thing that I'm done with, and this is, I never thought I would be because I thought I had endless uh, enthusiasm for this, is civilization as done in the Sid Meier sense. You know, where you try to build the pyramids and you try to upgrade your military units from, you know, it starts at a phalanx and goes all the way to, to mechanized infantry and all that other nonsense. I'm sick to death of this sort of weird nowhere uchronic pastiche of a whole bunch of different cultural elements and you know Genghis Khan is leading your tank brigade I've said this a bunch before I much prefer if you want to do a Civ thing I much prefer the way civilization was done by people like Francis Tresham or like Matt Gertz where you're going to stay in antiquity and you then don't end up in this bizarre parallel world with you know Galileo Galileo leading your space program in the 21st century it's ugh. it's just it's it just you start with historical trappings and you start with real world thematic elements and then you blow it up to the point where nothing makes any sense anymore because everything is jumbled together in a mess and you're supposed to be some sort of immortal god king pulling the strings of all these things and it's just suddenly it just undercuts any of the appropriate thematic elements and it's just every Civ game is in sort of the Sid Meier mold and I'm so sick of it Feudal Japan. Yeah, we talked about that when we talked about Rakugan. I'm, yeah. Every time there's fighting and treachery, people always think of Feudal Japan. I just wanted to pull back and and wonder, because I haven't got anything written down for this, but what does overusing a theme do to the industry or to a particular game? What what does it take away or or why is it a detriment to the industry? Well, to me, it's just a missed opportunity. To me, it's an opportunity cost where... A game can really stand out in my mind and really impress me if it's 
serving to differentiate itself from its, its, its hordes of competitors. Like the way you often put it is what's the hook. And typically we're talking about that in terms of mechanisms, but it can apply equally well in terms of theme. You know, one of the reasons why uh, Quartermaster General 1914, for example, is my favorite of the Quartermaster General games is precisely because it does a conflict that is very rarely done, especially in light strategic level conflicts. You know, Quartermaster General, the, the Second World War one, is like there's there's a billion and one World War II games, but the 1914 one is is sufficiently different, and it and 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 it started from a position of how can I serve to execute and represent this theme that is not typically done, right? Because some, if, if you're just going to reskin something, then you're not really going to gain much. But if it is a designer as a developer, if you take the theme seriously and you genuinely want to marry mechanics to theme and you start off by doing a theme that hasn't been done very much, well, then that tends to spur the sort of mechanical and gameplay innovations that, that you know, jaded gamers like you and I can really go for. I'm just wondering, while you were talking there, I was thinking about games that have tried to... And not listening to me, as per usual. Did you say something? Yeah, go okay. on. The games that have tried to break the mold, they usually come off as being gimmicky or silly or, you know, I mean, they come up with these outlandish themes that don't, you know, fall into the, you know, the right categories that all these other games do and maybe they don't do so well. And maybe that might be another reason why these designers always go with the, you know, the traditional themes because they've seen the path that these other games have gone down. Oh, sure. It's hard to do these things well. It's hard to be genuinely innovative. It's hard to be different. And it, it's hard to both be different and be genuinely good. But when I think of games like Fog of Love that seeks to do something that, that, that hasn't been done much, when you think of games like Nyctophobia, when you think of games that seek to really evoke something that hasn't been evoked before then I, you know, those are the things that keep me interested in the hobby and I really uh, can really spur a lot of innovation. And if you ask me, and sometimes it doesn't even necessarily need to lead to uh, a significant change, but, you know, sometimes a little nudge here, a little nudge there. Like if SEAL Team Flicks, for example, had not been about SEALs and instead had just been a bad D&D version like Catacombs was, you wouldn't have had this, you probably wouldn't have had this emphasis on stealth. And I don't know which which led which. I haven't spoken to you know uh, uh, Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas about where whether it started uh, in in the the place of the theme or whether it started in terms of the mechanics. But I think it was sort of an, an organic development of both. And as a result, we don't just get a, a an underrepresented theme. We also get an underrepresented set of mechanisms. So that's going to close us out for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get, get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For a more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.